Alzheimer's Insights, Surprising Lessons from the Blue Zones and Time Travel. Surveys around the world consistently find Alzheimer's in the top one or two positions of the most feared diseases. Typically, half of adults surveyed worry about developing dementia or Alzheimer's disease. Despite the massive public interest and enormous progress identifying molecular pathways linked to this neurodegenerative disease, pharmaceutical interventions over the past couple of decades have failed spectacularly in slowing or halting the cognitive decline. Outside of a chemical cure for Alzheimer's, the internet and social media are full of advice on colourful superfoods and Sudoku puzzles as strategies to combat cognitive impairment. But could both camps be missing some key, largely unacknowledged insights on modifiable factors as they are being drowned out with all the noise? Many are aware of the role of genes, cardiovascular health, smoking, etc. play in determining one's risk for Alzheimer's. Whilst these are important, they can be less impactful than a couple of unsuspecting factors working quietly in the background. Recognising and understanding these elements may change the way we view how the brain works and point towards often simple and non-invasive therapies. To do a deep dive into Alzheimer's and dementia, again, we'll go on the road less travelled and look at Mr. Potato Head, time travel, pension fraud, x-ray vision, putting a red line through the blue zones, and a historic lecture being usurped by a case of excessive masturbation. Let's sift through the information. Welcome, I'm Nathan Rose and this is the Sift Podcast, a show where we sift through the sea of information in areas such as health, nutrition, medicine and psychology in an attempt to get a better sense of what it all means. Using science and stories, I aim to synthesize the information so that you are up to date and informed on topics that matter to your health and well-being. We will learn lessons from the past, but also be excited about innovations and therapies on the horizon. On November 3, 1906, an excited doctor named Alois stood to the side of a stage at the 37th meeting of Southwest German psychiatrists in the town of Tübingen. Alois was eager to deliver his seminal findings. He was about to announce to the world his new discovery in neurology. Alois had combined his two disciplines, clinical psychiatry and neuroanatomy, to piece together a new clinical entity with enormous potential ramifications. It was his skill as a neuroanatomist that had enabled him to gain this unheralded insight. About a decade earlier, whilst working on his doctoral thesis, Alois earned the reputation as a master of anatomy. His doctoral thesis was on the cellular life of earwax. Unsurprisingly, his work on earwax didn't make him a household name, but this time, with his clinical case-taking and honed neuroanatomy skills, Alois felt this was his moment. Alois took to the stage and delivered his lecture titled A Peculiar Severe Disease Process of the Cerebral Cortex. The case was the sad story of a woman named Auguste Dieter, who, in her mid-40s, began showing signs of profound memory loss, paranoia, aggression and confusion. At the age of 51, Auguste was admitted to the Asylum for the Insane and Epileptic in Frankfurt and was placed under the care of Alois. He described how in the Frankfurt facility, Auguste could no longer read or write and how she substituted words with descriptions like milk pourer for cup. His lecture then transitioned from describing the clinical picture to the all-important neuroanatomy piece. 
August continued to decline in the asylum and passed away at the age of 55. Aloysius granted permission to inspect August's brain and immediately eyeballing the brain, he noted that it was smaller than expected for a 55-year-old woman. It looked as shrunken as the 80 or 90-year-old brains he'd seen previously. In fact, it looked even more degenerated. But as once Alois plied his craft of dissecting, staining, plating and magnifying the brain tissue under the microscope, did he see the main and unprecedented finding. Alois found that August's neurons contained long, tangly substances accumulated within them. They looked like a cross between a frozen tadpole and a suspended comet. Between the neurons in the surrounding supportive tissue, Alois found dark plaques that resembled piles of scattered seeds. Again, he had seen some of this before in very old brains, but again, nowhere near to this extent. August's brain was riddled with plaques and tangles, and this was the first documented cause of severe senility with accompanying advanced organic pathology in the brain. Alois proudly presented drawings of his findings to the crowd of his peers and proudly concluded his talk with, Taken all in all, we clearly have a distinct disease process before us. This was his mic drop moment. Time for rapturous applause, wild praise and getting lifted out of the bustling conference. But silence fell over the room. Awkwardly, the moderator asked the audience if there were any questions. Alois scanned the faces of the crowd. Finally, the moderator relieved everyone of the pain and said, Thank you for your remarks. Clearly, there is no desire for discussion. The lack of recognition of Alois's presentation continued into both the printed summary of the meeting and the media's coverage of the event. The most it received was two sentences. There was, however, extensive commentary and discussion on several psychoanalytical lectures over the course of the event, and in particular, a boisterous debate about one presentation on the cause of excessive masturbation. It wasn't until three years later did Alois's findings finally become recognised. Emil Kreplin, a renowned psychiatrist who initially encouraged Alois to present his work in Munich, included a discussion on August's case in a new edition of a neurology textbook. Kreplin described the plaques and tangles in August's brain, and like Alois in his lecture, Kreplin also asked if there was a new disease. In the last paragraph of the case, Kreplin coined the disease Alzheimer's disease in recognition of his colleague Dr. Alois Alzheimer. Within a few years, Alzheimer's disease was known worldwide. Whilst Alzheimer's disease became a widely recognised clinical entity after Kreplin's efforts, the pathology of the disease appeared to be largely ignored for over 50 years. In 1963, with the use of the relatively new technology of the electron microscope, researchers looked closely at the legions in Alzheimer's brains and they found neurofibrillary tangles, essentially rediscovering Alzheimer's work, but in high definition. Similarly, in 1984, with even more advanced tools, researchers from the University of California described the presence of a unique protein in neurofibrillary tangles, which they dubbed beta amyloid. From this point on, Researchers now had a metric or a marker that could be used to see if treatments could shift the needle in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Science now had a marker, but no explanation of what was causing the presence of this marker. They could now better describe the scene of the crime, but these forensics could not tell who the perpetrator was. Was beta amyloid the cause or the consequence of the disease? In 1992, the prestigious journal Science 
published a paper on a hypothesis of the cause of Alzheimer's, one that is still the predominant view today. John Hardy and Gerald Higgins proposed the amyloid cascade hypothesis, which is that the plaques and tangles are the end product of a cascade of events that ultimately begins with the accumulation of beta amyloid protein. Here's a quick breakdown of the cascade. A large protein exists in the nervous system that is the origin of beta amyloid, unimaginably named amyloid precursor protein, or APP. This is a protein 695 amino acids long. Think of amino acids like letters of the alphabet and proteins like words, collections of letters. Now think of APP as a long series of letters, like one giant word. Embedded in this long words are other smaller words. Think of the word together, it's got to, get and her. Or it could be tog and ether. A long word can be dissected into several groups of smaller words. Let's pretend APP is the word together. In the processing of APP, we possess biological scissors to chop up this word. Normally the scissors should chop up together into smaller words like to, get and her. But in Alzheimer's, there are faults in which scissors are used, and the wrong scissors break it down to tog and ether. Beta amyloid is like creating the bulkier word ether, compared to the normally processing of creating the smaller words get and her. Essentially, beta amyloid is a larger protein that has different signaling properties to the other iterations of breaking down APP. The presence of beta amyloid starts a chain reaction, or a cascade, that ultimately ends up with the plaques and tangles. The theory suggests that cognitive decline and the accompanying tragic clinical manifestations of Alzheimer's are a downstream consequence of beta amyloid accumulation. There are plenty of convincing lines of evidence supporting the beta amyloid hypothesis. For example, the APP protein is encoded on chromosome 21. Recall that our 23 chromosomes in our cells come in pairs. However, people with Down syndrome, at their 21st set of chromosomes, rather than the usual pair of chromosomes, they possess three of them. They have an entire extra chromosome containing a third copy of APP. That's an extra 50% more APP that is vulnerable to being processed by the wrong scissors. By the age of 60, half the population of the people with Down syndrome have Alzheimer's. There are a few other genetic populations that have a dramatically increased risk or decreased risk of Alzheimer's, all which are centered around the synthesis or degradation of beta amyloid. In the 1980s, researchers documented that a large proportion of an extended family in a mountainous region of Colombia had early onset Alzheimer's. For more than two centuries, generations of the Pasaya people often showed signs of dementia by middle age. The locals called this illness la bobera, which translates to the foolishness. Eventually, scientists found these people have a mutation in the PSEN1 gene, or the presnellin gene, which is involved in chopping up APP. They contain too many pairs of the wrong scissors. These people break down APP excessively into beta amyloid. From these equatorial inhabitants of Colombia, if you travel 8,000 kilometers northeast to the Arctic Circle, you'll meet residents who are poles apart in neurological ways. A small but significant population of Icelanders have been found to have be rather resistant to developing Alzheimer's, and again, this has been found to do with beta amyloid. Due to its bitterly cold and isolated environment, Iceland isn't the most attractive country to immigrate to. 
and thus the Icelandic gene pool hasn't diversified as much as other countries who have seen the influx of other worldly genotypes. About 0.5% of Icelanders carry a gene that is protective against Alzheimer's. Even though this is a small figure, it is much higher rate than any other countries nearby. This rare gene is responsible for producing a special type of APP, and essentially it draws a dotted line through our word together, between the T and the H to say cut here. People with this mutation produce the smaller benign word her, and less beta amyloid or the word ether. What does this translate to? Compared to their fellow Icelanders without this mutation, these folks are five times more likely to reach the age of 85 without being diagnosed with Alzheimer's. They also perform better on cognitive tests and live to an older age. Now I need to point out that all the above mentioned mutations are rare and fall under the umbrella of familial Alzheimer's disease. These make up only around 1% of all Alzheimer's cases. My point here is to show that there is compelling evidence that beta amyloid is implicated in the disease. These gene studies highlight the point. There is, however, another genetic risk that is relevant to the bulk of the disease outside of familial Alzheimer's. Apolipoprotein E, or ApoE, is a transport mechanism in the body that helps carry cholesterol, particularly to the brain, to assist in injury repair. Whilst ApoE can help heal an injured brain by delivering the scaffolding material in cholesterol, ApoE is also thought to interact with beta amyloid and fuel the problematic cascade. Thus, ApoE is linked to Alzheimer's disease and depending on what type of ApoE you possess can increase your risk. In humans, ApoE is present in three forms, or what's known as alleles. There is ApoE2, E3, and E4, which have a worldwide frequency of 8.4%, 77.9%, and 13.7% respectively. Now it's the E4 version that is linked to increased risk of disease. Even though only 13.7% of the population possess ApoE4, 40% of all Alzheimer's patients have this gene. Often in Alzheimer's research, exploring other risk factors or therapies, the test population is often divided by its ApoE status, highlighting how entrenched ApoE is in the research. And perhaps for a not-so-fun fact, ApoE4 was recently in the news after Chris Hemsworth discovered he possesses ApoE4 during the filming of his documentary on longevity called Limitless. Reports are that this discovery has alarmed Chris to be more mindful of ensuring this risk factor is managed. To summarise, the main purported pathology of Alzheimer's, the current paradigm, is the amyloid cascade hypothesis, and the offshoot of this is that interventions that reduce beta amyloid can prevent and even reverse Alzheimer's. Also, ApoE4 is a significant risk factor, and people with these genes may be at greater risk and may need to be more diligent with their health to help reduce the risk of developing Alzheimer's. None the wiser. One of the biggest stories in Alzheimer's research comes from the, one of the most unlikeliest and most diminutive figures. Standing at four and a half feet tall, weighing 38 kilograms and insisting only on to be referred to as Sister Mary, this humble woman not only sent shockwaves through Alzheimer's research, but at the same time provided immense hope. Born in 1892, the first of 11 children, 
Sister Mary was educated up to the 8th grade before she entered the School of Sisters in Baltimore, Maryland at the age of 14. Despite only achieving 8th grade education, by the time she was 19, Sister Mary was teaching 8th grade herself. Sister Mary did eventually receive her high school education by taking summer courses. It took a mere 22 summers to achieve her high school certificate. She was then aged 41. Sister Mary taught full-time until she was 77 years old, then worked part-time as a math teacher and teacher's aide for several more years. She finally retired at the age of 84. Even into retirement, Sister Mary continued to guide and give counsel, be involved in the local community, and keep abreast of world events. Sister Mary was particularly concerned about the health of the younger population, and in what she described as one of the most happiest days of my life, in 1990, she agreed to donate her body to science to the Anatomy Board of Maryland. A year later, Sister Mary and other sisters of her convent sat through a presentation from scientists from the University of Kentucky on brain aging and Alzheimer's disease. The scientist's sales pitch was an attempt to get permission to examine the nun's brains after they passed away. Sign me up, Sister Mary immediately blurted out at the conclusion of the presentation. She was one of 678 nuns across America to enroll in what was referred to as the Nuns Study. 118 agreed to have their brains autopsied after passing away. The study included regular cognitive assessments. David Snowden, the architect and primary researcher of the study, conducted tests with Sister Mary. His last test with Mary was when she was 101 years old and he described her as constantly aware, talkative and jovial. He declared she was the gold standard for successful cognitive aging, and the numbers proved it. At her last cognitive test, Mary performed the Mental Mini State Exam, also known as the MMSE. She scored a very respectable score of 27. To put that into context, that was the average score of a 77-year-old. In comparison, her age-matched peers in the study scored 17. Mary passed away a year later, aged 102. Snowden later considered Sister Mary's age at the time of her last test, and how close she was to passing away after that test, plus how little education Mary had received in her early life. With all this in mind, Snowden's calculations suggested, instead of Mary scoring 27 on her MMSE in her 101st and second last year of life, Mary's MMSE should have been only 4. That is, Sister Mary should have been well below the cutoff to be labelled severely demented, which was 9. Next was the moment of truth for Alzheimer's research. What did Sister Mary's brain look like? Similar to when Alois Alzheimer first saw Oikos' brain with the naked eye and detected marked degeneration, the basic crude measurements of Sister Mary's brain was alarming. Mary's brain weighed only 870 grams, whereas the average brain weight from the study was 1120 grams. Granted, Sister Mary was petite, so her brain may have been smaller anyhow. But it was the microscopic details that really shocked Snowden. Overall, Sister Mary had higher counts of both neurofibrillary tangles and plaques than the average found in the nun's study. Some areas of her brain she had fewer lesions, and others she had more than the average. But there were a couple areas in her brain that were well above average. In particular, of the 118 brains examined, Sister Mary had the second highest count of neocortical senile plaques, which is the accumulation of beta amyloid in this region. By this measure, Mary met the criterion for advanced Alzheimer's disease. 
ripping down tombstones. The finding from the Nun study in the late 90s wasn't the first to question the lack of correlation between beta amyloid deposition and cognitive decline. Numerous studies accumulated throughout the 90s and 2000s consistently showing a lack of correlation between the amount of beta amyloid in the brain and the clinical manifestations of Alzheimer's disease. Despite this, the beta amyloid hypothesis persisted and pharmaceutical companies developed drugs to target and lower beta amyloid. Indeed, the drugs worked remarkably well at reducing beta amyloid, with human clinical trials showing a reduction in serum or CSF fluid beta amyloid by 75-95%. to That's a huge reduction. However, these reductions have consistently and anonymously failed to provide any clinical improvement to Alzheimer's patients. Some studies show worsening of cognitive function on these medications. A recent review on the topic suggests that due to the failure of these trials, it's better to view beta amyloid deposits as a pathological feature rather than as a part of the major mechanistic hypothesis. Some give the analogy of the plaques and tangles are like tombstones, and removing tombstones from a cemetery will not bring back the dead. In this vein, perhaps manipulating beta amyloid levels after the fact is just as futile in terms of trying to improve cognition. The beta amyloid hypothesis, while the predominant model, is only one of several proposed theories of Alzheimer's. Others include the tau propagation hypothesis, the neurotransmitter hypothesis, the mitochondrial hypothesis, and even the infectious hypothesis. But similar to the beta amyloid hypothesis, many of these other theories have experienced similar failures, such as drug interventions aimed at addressing their pet theory has failed to improve cognition or even halt or decline the condition. Time will tell if any of these other biomedical theories prove to be more fruitful. Instead of scrutinising each theory to see how we can starve off Alzheimer's disease and dementia, let's take a different approach. To do this, we'll look at the success from helping people at the other end of the age spectrum. Looking for bright spots. In 1990, Vietnam had a horrific public health problem. More than 65% of Vietnamese children living in villages were malnourished. The government program of supplemental feeding was unsustainable and these regional children were becoming famished. Jerry Sternan from the US working for the Save the Children organization was sent to Vietnam to turn the tide of childhood malnutrition. His task was made even more difficult when the Vietnamese government who were disillusioned by international do-gooders who had previously failed their nation, demanded results from Sternan within six months. Sternan quickly got to work but deliberately ignored the well-established and academic cause of malnutrition, such as poor sanitation, poverty, lack of education, etc. He dubbed these TBU, true but useless. Sternan instead adopted a strategy known as positive deviance, which is to search a community for the individuals or groups whose uncommon behaviours and strategies enable them to find better solutions to problems than their peers. Essentially, find anomalies to the malnutrition in these remote communities and learn what they're doing. As Sternan put it, he was looking for bright spots, and bright spots he found. Sternan interviewed village mothers who had children that were nourished despite having the same lack of resources as the surrounding malnourished children. Sternan discovered these children were eating smaller but more frequent meals. Also, they were doing what was considered to be low-class practice of taking the brine shrimp from the rice paddies and the greens from sweet potatoes grown in their gardens and adding these to their daily soups or rice dishes. And finally, 
he learned that these children were being served soup from ladling from the bottom of the pot, which ensured the kids got more of the settled shrimp and greens. Sternen and a brigade of bright spot mothers trained other mothers in the villages, and by the ominous six-month milestone, the strategy had 65% of the children in these villages where Sternen worked were better nourished. Save the Children replicated this approach to address malnutrition in many other developing countries, including Asia and Africa, with considerable success. Looking for the blue spots. In a similar vein to Sternen, who searched for the positive rather than scrutinise the negative, a concept was popularised over a decade ago that suggested bright spots across the world where the inhabitants were relatively immune to age-related chronic disease, including Alzheimer's and dementia. It began with National Geographic explorer and journalist Dan Butner reporting on the apparent longevity in Okinawa, Japan. This sparked a quest for Dan to scour the world and identify bright spots, or blue spots, as Dan dubbed them the Blue Zones, after his team drew blue circles around regions on the map that claimed to have extraordinary longevity. Budner and a team of scientists and demographers travelled far and wide and identified five communities that qualified as blue zones. Sardinia, Okinawa, Loma Linda in California, the Nakoa Peninsula in Costa Rica, and Akara in Greece. The blue zones literature describes a utopian lifestyle of plant-based foods, moderate alcohol, plentiful exercise, mountainous air, spirituality, life purpose, and a strong family connection as the secret factors that delay the visit from the Grim Reaper and keep you sharp as a tack until the moment of your passing. For example, Butner cites that in the Blue Zone region of Akara in Greece, dementia among these people over 85 is rare and is 75% less common than the frequency that occurs in the United States. Better Call Saul The Blue Zones became red hot in popularity and was a playbook for healthy living in pop culture. Butner created a franchise with books and merchandise and boutique blends of coffee and speaking gigs. However, early on in the endeavour, doubts started to arise about the narrative, which even his research team raised. One paper in 2004 on the Blue Zones in Sardinia suggested that the longevity could be less to do with the 5pm glass of organic wine and the mountainside goat herding and more due to the noted fact that this region had a high rate of inbreeding. The research wondered if these Sardinians had some longevity genes that remained a secret because they mostly shared their genes amongst themselves. More solid data questioning the validity of the Blue Zones came in 2019 when Dr. Saul Newman of the Australian National University published his detailed analysis of longevity studies including scrutinising the Blue Zones. The conclusion of this study was a bombshell. The reported longevity and good health of these regions were not substantiated. Newman cites two main factors artificially creating a sense of longevity in these regions, measurement error and good old-fashioned pension fraud. For example, in Butner's debutante region Okinawa, when Newman gathered other data, particularly from government records, the picture he recreated wasn't the same utopia as portrayed in the Blue Zones. Newman found Okinawa had the fewest senior citizens per capita, the highest murder rate per capita, the second lowest median income, one of the highest unemployment rates, and the highest poverty rate in Japan. 
Instead of subsisting mainly on sweet potatoes, but only mindfully eating until they're 80% satiated as Butner preached, the Okinawans had the lowest per capita intake of sweet potatoes. In fact, they had the least amount of fruits and vegetables in general. Instead, the Okinawas had the nation's second greatest beer consumption and topped the country for paying honour to one of the most world's famous military figures, Colonel Sanders. Okinawans loved KFC and they also each consumed an average of 14 cans of Spam per year. In terms of longevity amongst the individuals, there was also marked doubt that these inhabitants lived as long as Budna suggested. Firstly, the Japanese government doesn't generate a birth certificate. Instead, citizens self-report births of other family members as sort of a family heirloom, and this is filed at the local town hall. This recording method can be prone to error. Also, Okinawa was heavily bombed during World War II, and they lost 90% of these pseudo-birth certificates. Replacement documents translated by Americans were created after the war, but due to potential errors in recall and details lost in translation, it's been estimated there is about a 79% variability in the new data, essentially little confidence that the data is accurate. In Newman's paper, he systematically provides compelling evidence in each blue zone that refutes the claimed longevity and excellent health purported by Budner, and summarises that each blue zone region ranks amongst the least educated, poorest, highest crime rate, and least healthy regions of their respective countries. But the big smoking gun was the exposure of the downright pension fraud citizens have committed in some of these regions. If one can convince the authorities that they are older than they are, then they can qualify for the pension sooner. These people could provide a false date of birth. The problem is, however, humans aren't really that good at generating random dates. We tend to fabricate the same numbers or avoid certain numbers. Research on pension fraud found that people claiming a ripe old age were 142% more likely to cite the first of the month as their birth date and over 120% more likely for the days divisible by 5, i.e. 5, 10, 15 and 20. But 25 was the exception. That was the least chosen number of any. Statistically, it's impossible that these over and under indexed days of the month can be due to chance. This suggests widespread fraud. Further, the other strategy for fraud is not declaring the death of an elderly family member and continuing to claim their pension. This was most illustrated in Greece, which has the blue zone of Acaria. The 2011 Greek census recorded 2,488 living centenarians. The following year, an investigation was conducted and found that over 9,000 Greeks were claiming a centenarian pension. That is, 72% of the centenarian pensions were being paid to dead people. Back in Japan, one case of pension fraud involved an 111-year-old man. Well, he would have been 111, but he died 30 years ago and his daughter and granddaughter mummified him and kept him in their flat while they collected the monthly checks for the next three decades. Finally, there are concerns about the legitimacy of the liveliness of one pension in Japan. According to the records, a man is still listed as alive at the age of 186. Baby in the bathwater. Although Newman comprehensively dismissed the view that the Blue Zones were bright spots of longevity, he's quick to point out that the general health recommendations from the franchise are still rather sound. When looking at the specific recommendations from the franchise on suggestions to help prevent dementia, these are all reasonable. Walk, combat depression, quit smoking, learn new hobbies, and maintain a social life. 
In fact, all these factors, except for learn new hobbies, are four of 12 modifiable risk factors listed in a paper published in the prestigious Lancet Journal recently. The paper is titled Dementia, Prevention, Intervention and Care 2020 Report of the Lancet Commission. This report suggests that there are 12 modifiable risk factors which account for 40% of the world's cases of Alzheimer's and dementia, and by addressing these factors, this could have large benefits. Several of the factors not mentioned by the Blue Zones relate to cardiometabolic health, like high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. Nothing too surprising there. In somewhat contrast to the Blue Zones, who are in favour of regular alcohol consumption, the report lists chronic moderate to heavy alcohol as a small but significant risk factor for dementia. Note the dose is important and the report suggests increased risk in those who consume 21 or more drinks a week. Air pollution is also cited as a small yet still significant risk. However, as I argued in the podcast on toxins, this risk is mostly to the unfortunate folk who live in developing countries who are exposed to high levels of air pollution. Most of us listening live in developed countries and although these places aren't perfect, even the cities have relatively low levels of air pollution. Level of education was listed the second largest risk factor for dementia. This is a major reason why Snowden was so shocked Sister Mary was cognizant right up into her 102nd year of life, seeing she was only educated to year 8. He knew the importance of education, especially in early life. Our 11th factor is a history of head trauma and is a stronger risk factor than many of the usual suspects such as smoking, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, etc. Hopefully, as our understanding of managing head trauma continues to advance, this may reduce the risk for dementia. We're left with one remaining risk factor. I'll pause in sharing it and quickly touch on some of the other risk factors that didn't make the list, but you think should have. Firstly, the report did not list diet or any nutrient as a risk factor, which may be counterintuitive to some. The report did review diet, but found mixed results or poor results with both diet and specific nutrients. Granted, diet can be difficult to study, as the effects occur over a long period of time and there are so many variables. There are some positive signs for the Mediterranean diet and some nutrients like omega-3 fatty acids, but the results, as mentioned, are mixed and often the benefits are sometimes only marginal. All that said, I think a healthy diet is necessary, but far from sufficient alone to prevent dementia and Alzheimer's, and the benefits are modest and does not warrant obsession over micromanaging your diet or striving for enormous amounts of consuming superfoods. There's arguably no hotter topic in health over the past few years as the role of adequate and quality sleep for health and well-being. The Lancet report did explore the role of sleep and suggest that, whilst there is a relationship and mechanistic plausible pathways, the data are confusing and reverse causation could just be likely at play. That is, poor sleep could be a consequence of dementia or an early part of the disease. Recently, there was a lot of discussion about the newly identified glymphatic system in the brain and how this waste disposal system is almost exclusively active during sleep, particularly non-REM sleep. When we are deep asleep, our brain's sewage system becomes activated and flushes away nasty products such as beta amyloid. If sleep is reduced, then we have less clearance and beta amyloid can accumulate. It's a brilliant discovery and a fascinating new field. However, this model is at odds with an observed phenomena in Alzheimer's, there has been a reported U-shaped curve of sleep in Alzheimer's disease, that is, both too little, less than 5 hours, and too much, more than 10 hours of sleep, are both linked to Alzheimer's disease. 
but those getting too much sleep might be confounded by the high use of sedative drugs, which themselves are linked to Alzheimer's. Again, like a sensible diet, ensuring you are getting adequate sleep certainly can't hurt, and perhaps time will tell if sleep is a significant risk factor for Alzheimer's and dementia. All or nothing, but no half measures. Now back to the mystery final risk factor for Alzheimer's and dementia. It's perhaps not one that easily springs to mind. I'm also going to wrap it up in a riddle or a paradox. The largest risk factor cited in the Lancet report ahead of education, smoking, obesity, diabetes and everything else is... Drum rolls please. I can't hear it. Turned up. Drum roll please. Still can't hear it. Raise the volume. Ah, uh, that's it. The biggest factor is hearing loss. Multiple studies show that adults who at baseline have normal cognition, their brain volume and cognition declines in proportion to the hearing loss over those years. Hearing loss precedes the onset of dementia and the worsening of hearing correlates with the worsening of cognitive function. This research also suggests that it's not reverse causation. It's not the declining cognition that drives the hearing loss, it's the other way around. Further, the deployment of hearing aids has been repeatedly shown to slow and halt cognitive decline. Now for the paradox of the red herring. If hearing loss is so problematic for cognition, then what explains the finding that people born congenitally deaf perform better on cognitive tests in old age than age-matched people with their hearing intact? What explains this all or nothing, or actually, nothing is better than all, which is better than some? Two separate reasons may explain why hearing loss over time is problematic, and why congenitally deaf people maintain healthy cognition. Let's first look at hearing loss. One overarching theory on Alzheimer's, which may account for Sister Mary's ability to maintain healthy cognition despite a degenerating brain, is called cognitive reserve. This ties into the often cited pop culture meme of doing Sudoku will prevent Alzheimer's. Essentially, use it or lose it. But it's more than just doing a crossword. People appear to be immune to dementia despite brain pathology if they have a purposeful, rich and engaging life. The brain continues to be plastic or malleable all through life and thrives off continuous, meaningful stimulation. Unfortunately, hearing loss hampers one's ability to engage in the world and creates another type of cascade in the brain. When a person is engaged in active listening, this builds cognitive reserve by stimulating brain development and neural pathways even in older age. However, with hearing loss, not only are these neural pathways diminished, as the person can no longer easily engage with others, they often also feel isolated, lonely, and become socially withdrawn. This lack of social connection further reduces neural stimulation, creating vicious feed-forward cycles and accelerating cognitive decline. Can Mr. Potato Head Cure Alzheimer's? Another theory suggests that what cognitive reserve that is left during hearing loss is overly spent on trying to decipher the muffled and muted sounds. Known as the cognitive load hypothesis, proponents posit that those with hearing loss spend a greater amount of their cognitive reserve budget on processing degraded audio signals. This results in less resources available 
for other cognitive tasks and is thought to lead to further cognitive reserve depletion. Whilst all this sounds depressing, new technologies have emerged that not only give hope to those with age-related hearing loss, it also hints at how remarkably malleable and plastic our brains are. Neuroscientist and author David Eagerman calls our brain's ability to be flexible, adaptable and malleable, even in old age, the Mr. Potato Head model. Recall Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head toys consist of a basic potato with various slots peppered all over them. You can insert any peripheral feature into any slot to create your own bespoke potato head. You can place lips, ears, eyes, hats, hands, whatever, into wherever you like. Eagleman argues that the brain is similar. It's this lump of fat sitting silent in this black box of a skull and it craves sensory input from the outside world to build a model of reality. The incredible thing is, the brain doesn't really care what the input is. It's like a USB port in computers. It just wants you to plug it in and it wants some sensory information and the brain will work out what to do with it and dedicate neural pathways to it. When it comes to hearing, Eagleman and his team have developed a device that replaces hearing in the case of deafness or makes up for the shortfall in the case of hearing loss. They developed a small wristband that looks like a Fitbit which contains four tiny vibrating motors. The wristband listens to the wearer's surroundings and converts the sounds into vibrations on your skin via the motors. The four motors can generate over 4 billion unique patterns. These vibrations are detected on the wrist and within a couple of weeks the brain learns that these vibrations correlate with sound. In a short period of time the person no longer feels the vibrations but instead has clear hearing. This has been demonstrated to improve hearing in those experiencing age-related hearing loss. Even if our senses such as our ears or even eyes degrade over time, with the potato head understanding of the brain, perhaps simple non-invasive devices that plug into the brain in other ways can not only restore what we perceive as hearing or sight, but Egon argues there's no reason why we can't develop new sensors like infrared vision or magnetoreception, which is the ability to detect the Earth's magnetic poles. While these may sound like cool party tricks, if a leading driver of Alzheimer's is declining cognitive reserve, or sometimes referred to as a lack of environmental enrichment, it's possible that sensory replacement or even sensory enhancement could be the key to combating the cognitive decline of Alzheimer's. Now, whilst the 12 risk factors mentioned in the Lancer report, especially hearing loss, are critically important, I want to suggest there is one final modifiable risk factor that isn't widely recognised. I also want to argue that this factor can determine your cognition way more than any other risk factor. To find out, let's continue on with the theme of seemingly crazy science fiction, such as x-ray vision to prevent Alzheimer's, with a game-changing insight that occurred when people travelled back into time. So let's hop into the light DeLorean and set the flux capacitor to 1959. Back to the future. Actually, let's begin in 1979 with a social psychologist at Harvard, Ellen Langer, who devised an unusual experiment. She recruited eight men in their 70s and 80s and sent them to a residential retreat for a week. Before the men arrived at their retreat, they had to relinquish all their personal affects, including their clothes. They were provided with a different set of clothes which didn't match the fashion of 1979. The newly kitted out men then walked through a door and essentially stepped through a time warp. Prior to their arrival, Ellen and her team transformed the retreat to resemble the men's lives 20 years earlier when they were two decades younger. 
every object and feature resembled 1959, from the furniture, to the music, to the newspapers, to the TV shows, and even to the clothes the men were wearing. They were even issued ID badges with photos of them from 1959. Not only that, Allen instructed the men to act like it was 1959, and not to discuss any events that had occurred after 1959. Also prior to stepping back into time, the subjects performed a battery of tests measuring physical and cognitive function. Langer also recruited another eight age-matched men and sent them to a modern retreat for a week as a control group, and they performed the same testing. At the conclusion of the week-long stay, repeat testing found that the men in the time warp demonstrated astonishing improvements in hearing, memory, dexterity, appetite, and general well-being. In fact, one volunteer stepped back in the past using a cane. He re-entered 1979 a week later, no longer needing it. Additionally, the subjects had their pictures taken before and after, and independent, blinded adjudicators deemed the after photos to look many years younger than the before photos. None of these beneficial changes were seen in the control group. Interestingly, over 40 years later, Langer and her team have recently replicated this 1979 study this time on elderly people in Italy. The results of this trial have not yet been published, but according to Langer in her recent book, The Mindful Body, the results from their Italian iteration replicated the 1979 study. In the time between these two studies, Langer and her colleague, Becky Levy, have published numerous other studies that continue to support the idea that our perceptions profoundly influence our preservation of cognition into advanced age. Let's return to the earlier riddle I posed to you. If age-related hearing loss can accelerate cognitive decline, what explains the paradox that congenitally deaf people perform better on cognitive tests in advanced age compared to their peers who have intact hearing? Langer and Levy conducted a study where they found deaf Chinese and deaf Americans outperformed age-match controls in four tests measuring memory. Langer and Levy chose deaf Chinese and deaf Americans as they felt these two groups had little in common other than both communities have high esteem for their older members. Unlike mainstream Western culture, which holds a negative stereotype of memory in old age, deaf communities' cultures hold a positive stereotype of memory as one gets older. An active elderly member of the deaf community is revered and provides young deaf people hope that their own life can be rewarding despite their deafness. From this research, Levy proposed the stereotype embodiment theory, which is a cultural stereotype where the positive or negative can be assimilated by an individual and embodied. Another way of saying it is that a person can absorb a cultural stereotype and this gets converted into affecting one's physiology. This is quite an out there theory, but Levy has not only observational data supporting it, she's also conducted experiments confirming its presence and how it affects one's physiology. A long longitudinal study. One very fruitful data set for Levy has come from the Baltimore Longitudinal Study of Aging, which began one year prior to Langer's Time Warp experiment, 1958. The study recruited young participants in 1958 and continues to this day, every year or two, measuring all manners of markers of aging. In 2012, Levy dove back into the archives and discovered that in the early days of monitoring these subjects, when they were in their 20s and 30s, 
They were asked a battery of questions about age stereotypes. They were asked if they agreed with phrases such as old people are absent-minded or old people cannot concentrate well. Levy divided the subjects into two groups based on their answers, those of the more negative age stereotype or those of the less negative age stereotype. She then accessed the most recent data, which was 38 years since the subjects were questioned on their views of ageing, with the participants all over the age now of 60. Levy found that those who held the more positive views of ageing nearly four decades earlier had 30% better memory scores now in their 60s and 70s compared to those who had a more negative view of ageing back when they were in their 20s and 30s. In 2016, Levy followed up the finding with brain scan data on subjects enrolled in this ongoing investigation. In this trial, dementia-free volunteers for the past 10 years had annual MRI brain scans, which measured the volume of certain brain regions. Again, Levy found that those who had negative age stereotypes way back in 1959 recorded a significantly greater reduction in the size of their hippocampus over the decade compared to those who held a more positive view of ageing. The hippocampus is a critical brain region for memory and a reduction in size is a driver of cognitive decline. Moreover, if any of the volunteers passed away over that 10-year period, Levy and her team had permission to follow in the footsteps of Alois Alzheimer and perform autopsies on the donated brains. Again, they found those who held more negative age stereotypes five decades earlier had significantly greater amounts of neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid plaques than those who held more positive views. Mind over genetic matter. To further explore the link between age stereotypes and overt physiological effects on one's brain structure and function, Levy has been investigating another group of older subjects. The University of Michigan has been running the Health and Retirement Study, the HRS, for the past decade, operating in a similar vein as the pioneering Baltimore study. Levy tracked a national sample of over 5,000 participants in the HRS who were aged 60 or older and dementia-free at baseline. Upon enrollment, the volunteers were asked, using a scale, their views on five simple statements. Those five things were, one, things keep getting worse as I get older. Two, I have as much pep as I had last year. Three, as you get older, you're less useful. Four, as I get older, things are better or worse than I thought they would be. And five, I am as happy now as when I was younger. Similar to her work on the Baltimore subjects, Levy tallied up the survey results and assigned each volunteer under the category of positive age beliefs or negative age beliefs. The subjects were then followed up four years later and found a significantly greater percentage of the negative age belief participants were now diagnosed with dementia compared to the positive age belief group. Now here's the kicker. The usual risk factors, such as the ones from the 2020 Lancet study, such as lifetime education, smoking and depression, had little bearing on the incidence of dementia. The age belief was the only correlation. And the icing on the cake. Levy measured the APOE genotype in these subjects. Recall, APOE4 is the single greatest genetic predictor of Alzheimer's disease. Indeed, if a subject possessed APOE4 and had a negative aged mindset, they had the highest incidence of dementia. But 
if a person was cursed with APOE4, yet had a positive age mindset, they had the same low incidence of dementia as fellow optimists with the preferred APOE2 or, or APOE3. In other words, mindset trumped genes. This seminal finding on APOE by Levy was quickly followed up with a similar look at the HRS subjects and their APOE status. This time Levy focused on the good APOE genotype, that is the APOE2, which is linked to reduced Alzheimer's risk. Again, the results were replicated. Genes appear to be important, but not as important as mindset. Those with APOE2 and a positive age belief had the highest cognitive scores. However, if they were blessed with APOE2, but they had a negative mindset, they had the same cognitive scores as non-APOE2 carriers. All in all, Levy found positive age beliefs are 15 times more important a factor to your cognition than the genes that you carry. Old dog and new mindsets. It appears clear that mindset has a profound impact on our cognitive function and risk for Alzheimer's as we age. But is our mindset a fixed trait like our APOE genes are immutable? Can we change our mindsets, especially in the second half of our lives? Well, the research suggests our mindsets are malleable and we can be conditioned to possess a more positive aged mindset. Again, as mentioned in recent previous podcasts, the mindset we hold is based off the mental models or predictions we build. In the case of healthy cognitive aging, we're often bombarded with negative age stereotypes in our media and culture, and this can become our default mode. But as I said, this is malleable. For example, in another study by Levy, she found that older people who journaled once a week by imagining a day in the life of a hypothetically healthy, active older person, just after four weeks, there was a significant reduction in the negative age beliefs. Other studies have provided education to elderly residents on how becoming sedentary is not an inevitable part of aging, and they should attribute being sedentary to modifiable factors, not their biological age. After seven weekly education sessions, the participants were taking 24% more steps and had a 30% improvement in their age expectation scores. This method of attribution retraining has been replicated across several cultures. Considering all the external signals in our culture which tend to drive a negative age stereotype and the demonstrated phenomenon that our mindsets on aging are malleable, leading experts suggest the following advice. Avoid attributing cognitive decline, such as memory loss, to biological aging. This reinforces the view cognitive decline is inevitable. Also, as you age, focus on all the things that you gain from living to an old age, such as experience, knowledge, and emotional regulation. Further, as much as there are suggestions on dieting for healthy aging, perhaps more importantly is to go into a media diet in old age. Be mindful of all the messages about age stereotypes in films and TV and social media, etc. Again, all this can reinforce age negative stereotypes. In contrast, look for positive role models, people in advanced years still active and productive. There's no shortage of successful older people out there to look up to. And finally, consider befriending people outside your own age group. This has been shown to improve your age expectations. Okay, so let's recap what we've covered. Since its discovery, 
there has been hints that physical or organic lesions are driving Alzheimer's. Currently, there is tremendous interest in beta amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles, and the hunt continues to discover drugs to address the pathology and ideally improve cognition. However, the accumulating track record is disappointing, and there is a lot of skepticism that chasing beta amyloid with drugs will ever prove to be fruitful. In contrast to chasing biomolecules and lesions in the brain, much research has stacked up suggesting addressing modifiable risk factors. In a somewhat of a shotgun approach to address many unfashionable risk factors, this may be better than the pharmaceutical industry's quest to discover the silver bullet. In fact, despite what you might believe or hear in the media, the trend for Alzheimer's disease is similar to that of cancer, which is a positive trend. That is, without realising, the incidence of dementia has been on a steady decline over the past 25 years. It's dropped 13% per decade. Researchers attribute this not to breakthrough drugs, but primarily via the management of boring, yet critical modifiable risk factors like hypertension and high cholesterol. So a big chunk of preserving cognitive function and preventing dementia may be by maintaining cardiometabolic health, not drinking too much, not smoking, etc. But in my view, whilst all this general advice on the usual risk factors is sound, the two unsung levers to pull, which are arguably the most important, are rarely mentioned. The cognitive reserve model stresses our brains need constant stimulation and input. We need to keep busy with engagement and purpose like Sister Mary. I think technology will play a critical role in building our cognitive reserves in the future, and our prevention and treatment of cognitive decline may be novel and, dare I say it, it might be fun and enjoyable. And speaking of the future, we learnt lessons from travelling back to the future. Our other major modifiable yet largely unknown risk factor is the power of our ageing expectations. These appear to be far more powerful than the genetic cards we've been dealt, and thankfully they are malleable and can be used to our advantage. The importance of cognitive reserve and age expectations reminds me of the famous line in the old movie Shawshank Redemption when inmate Andy responds to his friend Red's pessimism of incarceration. He says, I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. You get busy living or you get busy dying. Perhaps the best way to prevent Alzheimer's disease might just be to get busy living. Thanks for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your qualified healthcare provider before starting any new treatment or discontinuing an existing treatment.